Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for the show. And with me today, I have my friend, Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. I know you want me to call you Bob, too, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Dave, for having me uh, back with you. And yes, you can call me Robert or Bob or whatever you prefer. Thank you for having me again. You're welcome, brother. Well, can you uh, catch us up on what's happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and any ministry projects that you're working on? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I uh, continue to teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Louisville, which means both people on campus as well as a huge online presence. In my sixth year here, having been at Southeastern prior to that, and teach master's in counseling and MDiv counseling, biblical counseling programs and courses, and we have doctor of ministry degrees and PhD degrees all in biblical counseling as well. Uh, Lauren and I and my wife, we've been married 38 years. We have uh, two children and two daughters-in-law. They're adult children, and they all four, by God's grace, are walking with the Lord. And we have uh, four granddaughters, uh, three born and one to be born any minute, literally. We uh, expect to hear news soon. I actively teach at uh, Southern, but also I do a lot of ministry within my own local church and always involved with various kinds of writing projects and ministry projects uh, as well. Well, wonderful. Congratulations on your grandchild coming and, and on uh, everything happening. You know, it's great to, great to hear what the Lord. Yeah. Has. You'll, you'll notice that I said, I have four, four grandchildren, yeah. Uh, yeah. three born and one unborn. I, one of my Good. pro-life commitments is to speak of babies that are already here, even though we haven't met them yet. So. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book, uh, The Gospel for Disordered Life, an introduction to Christ-centered biblical counseling you wrote with Kirsten Kellen and Rob Green? Uh, why did you guys write it, and how do you hope it'll be received? Well, we're really, really excited about it. It uh, took several years to work through there. Um, the, 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 the title is uh, reminding us that all our lives need help. Uh, we are playing off a little bit on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which talks about mental disorders, but, but we're not just playing off that. We see within Scripture that God created an ordered world in Genesis 1 and 2, and then sin has uh, created all sorts of problems there. And so we want to bring what we're calling a Christ-centered biblical counseling. We don't want biblical counseling to be devoid of the Lord Jesus. We think the gospel is at the heart of all true Christ-centered uh, counseling. Uh, I had the ability to, the opportunity to be the lead uh, writer and uh, to recruit both Rob and Kristen, Kristen teaches at Southeastern Seminary in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina. And Rob is a pastor and a professor at um, uh, Faith Bible Seminary in Lafayette, Indiana. So these folks have been friends of mine, and uh, we 
recruited them to be part of the project. Uh, the, the book itself is 40 chapters, so it's very comprehensive. It has a very, one of the strengths of the book is it, there's a scope um, that goes all the way from what is counseling and how, who should counsel and uh, basic theological foundations for biblical counseling, and then the whole section on methodology of starting from how do you start a first session to conclude. And then uh, there's about 20 chapters that tell us about different problems, very common individual problems. We didn't get into the size of the book. We didn't get into marriage issues, but all sorts of 20 or so individual problems. And I suspect we'll talk about some of those uh, today. Well, you're talking about biblical counseling, and it's always good to, you know, clarify what we mean when we use terms. What what exactly is Christ-centered biblical counseling? Yeah, well, first we want to say it's counseling. So it is one-on-one or one-on-two. You know, it's that interpersonal, private ministry uh, in which we listen, care, enter people's worlds, understand what's going on, and really spend time just like any good counselor would do. But we talk about Christ-centered biblical counseling. We, we mean that the scripture itself gives us uh, the, the answers to people's problems. It gives us the categories. It gives us the way to think about people, the way to interpret their um, what happens to them and how they're experiencing what happens. Uh, and so we, we really think that the scripture itself is driving our categories and the way we look at people and the way we look at problems. Mm. That's really, really good. Who who can and should do biblical counseling? Well, we see biblical counseling in a broad sense here. There are, uh, and one answer to the question is everyone, because all of us, Dave, are always counseling each other. We're always giving advice and opinion, and we're always listening and reflecting and trying to care for one another. And the scripture itself has plenty of passages. We often call those the one another passages, but those passages that seek to uh, help one another deal with life's problems. So in that sense, everyone is called by Christ to counsel someone in some way. Uh, now, we typically, when we hear the word counseling, however, we think of something a little more formal. And so there's just going to be various levels of training and education and experience. Uh, we do argue for the, the primacy and the value of local church-based counseling and think that this is where pastors and elders and church leaders should be the, uh, as David Powelson would call it, the, you know, the, the counselors in chief, right? The, the main counselors. But in the book, in chapter two, we talk about all that I just said. And then we also talk about there is a, definitely a place for people who are state licensed and, and people who are not uh, church-based, parachurch, uh, Christ-centered counselors. And there's always a need for biblical counseling everywhere on the planet. And so the more people can get trained, even if they are uh, church-based or not, the better. So we, we get excited about the and, – and one of the goals of the book, if I can add that too, Dave, at this point, was to provide a resource – for students who are studying counseling in Christian schools, but also for pastors and church leaders, small group leaders, mature, godly um, lay people. I mean, it's not an introductory book to give to just a, you know any new Christian, but for those who have a heart of ministry, lay people, really, honestly, my heart is right there. I'm, I'm as much a, a church person as I am an, an, an academician, right? And so I just really uh, wanted to make sure, and it, I think it really is on the level of general readership. So we get excited about that. Yeah. 
You said something really important, I think. It's that, and I appreciate the clar- clarification you offered about you know, not just being church-based, but not being against parachurch or or even state, you know, uh, those are certified from the state, but maybe you could speak to that a little bit about, you know, why the local church should be ground zero, if you will, for, you know, biblical counseling and and what that kind of looks like. You know, when you read, for example, First Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, he refers to the local church there as the building and ground, the foundation, uh, uh, the foundation for the gospel. In other words, there's this direct and immediate role that the local church plays in ministering to people's lives. We are that eternal organization. It's going to go beyond marriage, right? And when every other uh, parachurch and organization, you know, is over, the, the church of Christ will continue. And so Paul gives us that foundation in First Timothy for why the church is so Central, and then if you just think practically about it, and again in chapter two we talked about some of the some of the benefits. But uh, you have God ordained shepherds over you. Uh, you have the oversight of them. You have the one another care within the body. It's just so very valuable, and yeah, the church is where it's at. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. now. I, let me let me add too, though. Yeah, that there's a sense in which um, anyone who's a Christian counselor could profit from this book, even if you don't. Even if you're a state licensed person who doesn't necessarily agree with every aspect of biblical counseling, because each chapter that talks about problems does get into a biblical perspective, then a Christian counselor can maybe use whatever model they're using, but find a lot of profit on how to think biblically about addiction, how to think biblically about depression and sadness. So we think there's a great benefit for the whole uh, body of Christ who are caring, doing Christian counseling. Yeah, that's really good. Um, how can biblical counselors help people understand and address guilt, repentance, forgiveness in their lives? You know, the starting place whenever we think of guilt and repentance, forgiveness, and those themes uh, is going to be the gospel itself. We must start with how God himself has created us and how he understands and defines uh, sin and how he has provided the remedy in Christ and by his spirit, allowing us to repent, to turn away from sin and to, by faith, hold on to Christ and follow him. I think one of the struggles that a lot of Christians face is what we might call, and we try to make this distinction also there, um, I think it's in chapter seven, where we talk about the distinction between a, a kind of clear guilt where there's a command of God that I just violate and I'm just wrong and I know it. And then what we might call a kind of confused guilt and that by this, I mean, we break a kind of law that we have erected in our own hearts, the law that says that I must be perfect in my dealings with someone or that uh, the, the law that says I'm responsible for my um, marriage. And if my spouse doesn't follow the Lord, then I'm guilty or something like that. Mm. You know, those are what we would call a, a kind of distorted law. And when you put yourself under that law, you break the law, your conscience is doing what it's supposed to do, you know. You know, so instead of calling this like like false guilt, which is a very confusing term, first of all, it can kind of be a bit demeaning to you if I say, well, come on, Dave, you have false guilt. Now, really, there is a kind of guilt there, but it's not guilt that you've done anything wrong. It's the guilt that you've allowed your conscience to be formed and framed under a, the law that's not God's. And so for me, biblical counseling, Dave, is, is a way to liberate people. It is a freeing thing where we come to see that 
you know, this isn't what God calls you to do. You don't have to take responsibility for how your child turns out. You just have to do what God's calling you to do. And, and so many examples we could give, but yeah. So, so go back to the gospel itself mm-hmm. and, uh, and the glories of Christ forgiving grace. That's the answer, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I mean, because you're helping people understand or helping people understand who they really are, not who they, you know, once were or who they even think that they might be, just like who they really are in, you know, Christ in the sense of, you know, like 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, mm-hmm. you know, kind of way. So. I think that's really good. Yeah. Amen. What happens if we either ignore or forget Satan's schemes or even overestimate him by saying more than the Bible says? You know, the whole topic of, of Satan is one that in biblical counseling, we probably haven't spent a lot of time on. I've talked to some people just recently about this. Uh, in many ways, I'm following the lead of my primary mentor in biblical counseling has been uh, you know, David Pallison. Um, a dear brother who died early in our judgment just a few years ago now. And uh, I, I think the dangers on the left and the right here, and C.S. Lewis warns us about, you know, ignoring him or giving him too much credit. I think if we ignore him, we forget the fact there is someone more powerful than us mm. and uh, someone that uh, is involved. And he is involved with all areas of sin. The Bible doesn't make those sharp distinctions like, well, this is demonic or this is not. There's a sense in which uh, all sin has has sort of the power of of Satan involved. And yet, and yet, it's not in the scripture something that's causative. And that's where we can overestimate him with any kind of lag language. You know, the devil made me do it and things like that. Some of your the listeners who are- The details or- The devil, whatever. yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, some yeah. Of, some of your uh, listeners are old enough to remember uh, Laughing and Flip Wilson years ago. The devil made me do it, and that kind of thing. Or the church lady on uh, Saturday Night Live. Oops, sorry, I shouldn't have uh, let out the fact that I have watched Saturday Night Live in the past. Um, <laughs> Oops, bloopers. <laughs> But, you know, there's just ways that there's a caricature out there that would blame the devil for things. And the good news in the gospel is that the spirit of God is more powerful. And so while we don't ignore the devil, we certainly recognize that we have victory in Christ and we depend on him. And and here's the other thing I would add to that, David, and that is that uh, whenever we read in scripture about how to deal with the devil, it's pretty much always the same. You know, we're we're not exorcists. And Jesus and his apostles did, but we get into the rest of the New Testament, you don't see that going on. What you see is this constant call to stand against, to withstand, to pray, to repent. The answers are always have gospel answers to them. And so it's not weird and Steven Spielberg or anything like that. It's just basic faithfulness to the Lord God. I mean, there's no boogeyman behind the Behind the curtain? <laughs> not not in that sense, though I will say there is Satan involved, but not yeah. in that as that causative power. He's not the right. causal agent. It's our own heart. In fact, when the Bible speaks of, I think, spiritual matters, uh, the flesh spirit warfare is actually more prominent, I think, right. in the constant call in Romans and Galatians, um, yeah. Colossians, yeah. Yeah, I love I love, you know, that famous passage in Ephesians six. I mean, the whole thing is framed through union with Christ. And that's that's yes. really amazing. We don't we don't hear much about that relationship in terms of spiritual warfare. But if you like really look at it and see like in the Lord or be strong in the Lord or you know, in the Lord or in Christ or in him, that's the language of you know, union with Christ. And and I don't I don't see too many people mention that in spiritual warfare books, just as 
you know, an aside on that. You know, you know, Paul didn't start a new chapter in Ephesians chapter six when he talked about the devil, did he? He spent no. five and a half chapters telling us about the spiritual matters, and then he comes into some explicit things about, you know, how to fight against Satan. But it's been there all along in the whole book of Ephesians, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, what are a few of the foundational principles for Christ-centered change? Well, at the risk of being a little repetitive here, it's going to have to start with, with the gospel itself, what God and Christ has done, because we would recognize that all Christ-centered change is uh, comes from God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in our growth, our sanctification, our uh, mature, maturation there. Always. So we start with that triune God and see what he's doing. And then, of course, we do respond. We respond by the Spirit's help. We cooperate, if you will, with uh, what the Spirit of God is doing in us. I think we have to remember, particularly find this in counseling, because problems don't change as quick as we want them to change. I've had plenty of counselees who you know, are hoping for a, a quick fix. I just talked to someone the other day who just said, at the end, so what do I do? And I repeated some of the stuff that we already said, but there's not going to be like a, a really quick, quick change. Uh, it's going to be progressive. And so we look to what in historic reform theology, we've talked about the means of grace, the private means of grace, and then the church. I think you see the calls to change like in the New Testament letters, the epistles are always embedded in the life of the church. And it's through the pastors and through the members of the church that the Lord helps us grow and change. And Again, that's where biblical counseling has both that more informal one another care, but also then the more formal forms of that. I think what you just said, though, is really good. Um, all of that is really good, but especially like setting a clear expectation for the person that, you know, this is going to take some time. You know, it's not a quick fix like you're going through McDonald's or your fast food restaurant. This is going to take time. And, you know, but then people, like you said, uh, when you say that to people, they're like, well, what do I do in the meantime? I just, I just told you, you know, it's like, sometimes that's not enough, you know, and you maybe have to spell out a few, a few other things, you know, I don't know, at least I do sometimes whenever I say it to people, because they're like, oh, well, what do I do? And they, they kind of feel like there's like this unresolved kind of like issue. And it's like, well, we're going to be talking, continue to talk about that. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I think just kind of setting that expectation, but also, you know, pr providing, when somebody asks, I'll probably give them some more ac actionable action steps. Like, hey, here's some things that I'm talking about, and here's some things to to maybe work on or think about as when we come back together. I don't know. What your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think it's one of the most loving things we can do is to say to people that change may not happen as quick as you want it to be. God's work in the nation of Israel, obviously wasn't overnight, and uh, God's maturation of his saints throughout history is not going to be overnight. overnight. And, and the reason it's a loving thing to do is, is this. If we give the impression that the change is quick, and God does sometimes do that. You know, he does remarkably quick things sometimes. But we help them understand that it's not necessarily going to be that way. Uh, we help them in this way once they start making changes and find that it's not going fast, they can be tempted to think, well, I must be doing something wrong. You know, I've been reading my Bible and I've been praying, but this habit, this, this anger response, this addictive problem doesn't seem to snap as quick as I thought. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Oh, no, sister. Oh, no, brother. You're not doing anything wrong. Change may take more time, uh, more time than you had hoped here. 
But here's the good thing. In the midst of following the Lord, you are doing, you're pleasing to him, even if the change is slower than you want it to be. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really good. Really good. What are the three commitments of a biblical counselor? Yeah, that was uh, one of the chapters that my um, colleague, Rob Green, wrote. I found it very helpful. Uh, in fact, let, can I go and insert one thing about the process? Uh, yeah, I've yeah, done some, for it. I've, I've done some co-writing with, um, on some, some chapters for the Biblical Counseling Coalition. And those chapters in which I did some co-writing, you know, we would look at each other's manuscript once and, you know, time deadline. With this book, all three of us looked at each of the 40 chapters pretty carefully, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth editing. If you saw the original draft of any one of our chapters, one of, you know, so what we did is we assigned each one of the writers. Um, I kind of divvied it out with their input. Uh, and you looked at the original drafts that I wrote and they wrote, and you looked at the final product. You would have said, oh, my, this is major changes. Well, those major changes were the value of having two other doctoral level thinkers, but experienced uh, and practitioners of biblical counseling, look at each other's work. And so the editing process was probably frustrating at times. Um, I'm a picky writer. I'm, uh, you know, I'm very cautious in how I say things. And I know I frustrated my team there, but it proved to have a much better book. And we learned from each other and it produced a better book. Um, So back to your question now about uh, uh, those commitments, Uh, Rob identified some really helpful things here, that um, humility in self-counseling, that a good counselor has to be one who is himself or herself understanding how this gospel is changing their lives. And I found that really helpful. Uh, The second commitment he talked about was servanthood this mindset that we've come to help you and how can I help you and how can I uh, lovingly care for you? And then uh, he mentioned another area and that's a desire to thrive. And that is we just want to keep growing and improving and learning to be a better counselor each time and getting help from others who can help us and continuing education and things like that. So I thought it was a great chapter. That's great. That's great. Especially like if you're going to counsel other people, you got to be counseled yourself or receive care yourself because you can't just give and give and give. You know, that's that's really, a, really an important thing. Yes. Yeah. What, what are some keys to helping people with anger, resentment and bitterness? Well, uh, I did write this particular chapter because I had written previously uh, actually two different books on anger and then a book on pursuing peace, which dealt with uh, bitterness as well. I can boil it down to a couple keys. Uh, one would be distinguishing between a, a legitimate desire for a good thing. And you and I and everyone listening today is filled with desires for good things. We want this to happen. We want the weather to be good. We want our friends to treat us nicely. We want our income to be sufficient. And just we have tons of wants. That's what it means to be human. The problem is that any one of those desires can very easily, we would say, ascend the throne, climb up the throne of our heart and become uh, that which we uh, demand. And so it's not just that I want my wife, desire my wife to treat me a certain way, which is good and healthy and right. In fact, if, if I didn't want my wife to treat me in a good way, you would question me and question you know, <laughs> my, my view of marriage. No, I, I would desire that. But what happens is 
I let that become a demand. And so when she doesn't treat me a certain way, I don't get what I want. I'm right in the land of James chapter four, which uh, James reminds us that, you know, the reason we have fights and quarrels, James four, one through three, is because we we don't have what we want. We we want what we want when we want it, we don't get it. And, and so that's kind of where that, that anger stems from. And then when you think of words maybe like resentment or bitterness, I think those are terms that relate more to when, when anger settles down. So it's not just that, Dave, you might do something or say something that bothers me and I get angry at you because of what you said or did. Well, resentment and bitterness, I think, comes when it doesn't matter what you do anymore, Dave. It's it's you. I just don't like you anymore. I'm I I resent you. I'm bitter at you. And there's nothing you can do right at that point. And so it's a horrible thing. And scripture has a lot to say, and we're called to get rid of it all. Uh, so we have to identify where it's coming from. It's coming from that heart demand. We have to see it's um, unbiblical. It's not what God wants us to be. And then we have to understand the answer for all this um, anger, resentment, bitterness is the forgiving grace of God in our own heart. And so I think of that great parable in Matthew 18, where the servant has been uh, forgiven a multi-million dollar debt by the master, you know, symbolizing the Lord here. And he goes out and tries to exact out of another fellow servant a far lesser debt. And the master is upset, and rightly so, because, you know, he hasn't grasped the depth of his own forgiveness. And so when I understand that I've been forgiven a multi-million dollar debt, it really changes the way I look at people who have offended me. And yeah. 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 I know sometimes I can jump on that treadmill of, you know, the negative thoughts towards people and bitterness. And then I you know, start thinking about that. And then I have to jump off that hamster wheel because, you know, it's like, then remember what Philippians 4, 8 says, I'm supposed to be thinking about what is noble and pure and good and, and lovely. And when I'm thinking that way, I guess what? I'm definitely not uh, thinking in the way that Paul describes renewing your mind no. through the word and, you know, the spirit taking the word and renewing it and those kind of things. And was just reminded as you're talking about that because I've, I've been guilty of that repeatedly. And what it does is it, it it stirs up, like you're saying, that that anger, that bitterness. And you probably aren't seeing, I want to be careful here when I say this, probably, I know for me, I'll just say for me, usually when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm just stirring up a whole bunch of previous memories and stuff like that, things that, you know, I'll probably need to look at and consider, but also a lot of that has already been dealt with for, for me. And uh, so going back to that and stirring up those feelings, those things, are, it's just not healthy. And I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm also saying for the person listening or watching this, you know, you do need to probably get some help with that. Um, but be, care, be careful not to stir those like thoughts up and, and, and to go onto that hamster wheel over and over again, because it really, it really doesn't help. And it really, um, it's really quite harmful and doesn't help you to process those things in a, in a healthy way. Yeah, one of the things Paul reminds us in the famous uh, love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's around verse 3 or five, 4 or 5 there, uh, that love keeps no record of wrongs, verse 5, I think. And I think what that, the kind of thing you're talking about, Dave, I think that all of us uh, deal with sometimes uh, comes to, we, we have to come to the place where we make a choice 
on how we're going to respond to so-and-so who's offended us. We're either going to just choose to cover over that and uh, yeah, let it go, overlook, and Scripture has a lot to say about that. Or if it is something that's more serious, we do have to then raise it wisely and gently confront. And that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other book, Pursuing Peace. Okay. But what we can't do, and I think this is what you're saying we wrongly do, you know, instead of uh, covering it, instead of confronting it, we cook it. If I can make a little alliteration here, the three C's, we cook it. We let it just simmer inside. We don't deal with it. And if you don't deal with it in a godly way, then uh, it it can come back and be a memory for you. And then the next time so-and-so does something, now you're beginning to keep a record and you're beginning to store up a resentment is, is building there. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it, and it just, I had to just jump off that. I've had to realize I just have to jump off that hamster wheel and cause it, it doesn't, it doesn't do anybody any good. Um, like you said, it, it just builds further anger and resentment and probably I haven't really understood the perspective. Like you were saying, I haven't understand that other person's perspective towards it either. And that's not, that's not good either. So um, these just, these are just some things that help me to, you know, jump off of that. So I just wanted to mention it, that, you know, struggle. And, and the more that we can share that with a godly friend, yeah. the more we can open up our life to someone, you know, I, I'm not even talking about formal counseling though. That's fine. Also to go yeah. to a, you know, a counselor, maybe within our church, preferably, but just sharing it with a, a dear friend and who can just give you basic counsel, yeah. which, again, is why I really do hope that this kind of book is something that can get into the lives of small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and others who are influencers within the church. Um, yeah. yeah, that's really good. What are what are some keys to helping people with worry, anxiety and fear? You know, in the book, we decided and this is in um one of the chapters on this topic, we decided to try to put those all together. There may be some fine-tuned distinctions one could make, but I find they're basically synonyms, worry, anxiety, fear. And uh, if they're not synonyms in how we experience those things, the answers are very much the same kinds of answers. It's repeated. Uh, Three words come to my mind, God's presence, God's power and God's promises, because what we find there is that when we forget God is with us in a situation, the God who loves us, we're going to feel alone, and that's going to be fearful. When we forget that he has the power to actually help us handle the things that we fear and worry, and when we forget of his his promises— So I I like Matthew chapter six. I think it's a a very powerful passage. Uh, There's two things in Matthew six that I like to point to. And usually most writers only look at the second one, but I think there's something about the first one. In Matthew six, Jesus says in verse 25, uh, therefore, do not worry. But what we forget is that therefore is there for a reason, right? To use an old uh, Bible study uh, joke, you know, what's the there for, therefore? And it's there because the previous verses talk about ways in which we can treasure inordinately. We can idolize money. We can lay up uh, treasures on earth. And when we do that, we uh, inordinately treasure something. We will worry and fear about it. 
I will logically, it makes sense. Why wouldn't I? Why I should be concerned about the things that are the most important things in my life. The problem is when I make those the most important things and um, I, I miss the, the idea of, of treasuring the Lord. And then the second thing Matthew 6, 25 and following talks about is the, um, the problem of our just lingering unbelief, lack of strong faith, questions and doubts about God's ability to care and provide for us. Uh, so they're the two things that I like to think about when we think about worry, anxiety, and fear. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, as you're talking, I, I remember in Philippians 4, 5, Paul says, everything that he says falls this linchpin, you know, the Lord is near. It's That's amazing because then he goes on and he doesn't minimize your, you know, anxiety or anything. What he does is he refocuses your anxiety yeah. on the yeah. fact that God is there. Um, and that's that's so important for, like you're saying, treasuring Christ, but also the other side is, hey, he's not like saying, hey, just like, don't worry about your, don't deal with it, don't don't stuff it, don't, you know, no, actually face it, refocus it, it not in an earthly perspective, but see it from, you know, heaven's perspective. And I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we don't want to. Um... Uh, you know, the old song, don't worry, be happy. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, well, if there's any Seinfeld fans out in, left in this world, uh, Serenity Now, you want to think about that. Anyway, it's already kind of messed your minds up probably there. But just different ways the world has just well, stop worrying about it as if that's something I can turn off. What? Yeah. Hey, the Philippians 4 is so good. Uh, verse, I'll just, you know, a quick couple of thoughts on Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice. And Paul has given us three plus chapters of things about the gospel that we can rejoice over. And then, as you said, verse five, the uh, matter of God being near. It's interesting, uh, Dave, that the, the Philippian scholars seem to divide as to whether the Lord being near means he's present in my life or he's about to return. Either uh, the scholars seem to divide on that, but both are true. I, I wish I knew exactly what Paul meant at that point, but both are true. And then you go on as, you know, to pray in verse uh, six and seven, and then to think on godly things, as you noted earlier in verse eight, and then do what Paul does in verse nine, and go on into contentment in verses 11 through 13, and God's strength enabling me to handle life situations. Um, there's so much in that Philippians 4 chapter. Yeah. It really is. What are what are some keys to helping people with grief? You know, we for us to help others with grief, we must start with weep with those who weep. A friend of mine uh, lost his dog. In fact, two friends of mine have lost their 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 dogs. And you know, I'm thinking, I don't have a dog, Dave. Um, <laughs> but dog you know guy, what? Huh? I'm not uh, I'm not a cat guy. I'm not a pet guy. Okay, but. Here's what I, I, I realized, you know, grief is an individual experience based on what you're who you're close to or what you cherish. And so obviously we think of deaths of friends and uh, family members who die. And, you know, we've had funerals and things like that. So I think our first step is to really understand and enter into the house of mourning with that person. And in one sense, you know, Job's counselors had it right at the beginning, right? You know, they did just listen and spend time and in that sense earned 
the right to speak. Now, what they said is problematic, but uh, in terms of just being able to enter their world. But but it's not about us at the end of the day. We are instruments of God. And so, uh, again, if I can repeat what I said about the worry, anxiety, fear, God's presence, God's power, God's promises for us. Um, Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you, God says. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you in my righteous right hand. We just have to bring by our own lives the calming, confident presence of God and point the person to God, help that person learn, and it's a process to learn how to lament, how to talk to God, how to bring your doubts and fears and even those, those angry moments, Lord God, I need your help. I feel alone right now. Um, uh, I think Kristen wrote that chapter, and uh, she has some real practical things in there, too, about how to help people who are grieving. So I really appreciated my sister's work on that. That's awesome. That's great. Well, this is a this is a big one. I know I probably deal with this issue all the time with guys. What are some keys to helping people with pornography and masturbation? Yeah, we have a chapter on that. And um, we also have a uh, at the end of that chapter, someone as an aside here, some basic direction and, and some resource for women who are um, married to a, a husband or a boyfriend, you know, dating, uh, or some case, case, even a parent, a father who's dealing with this problem. Uh, we we want to get to the heart of this by recognizing that it is indeed a heart issue, that uh, it is the equivalent, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, of adultery, of um, what you do with your mind and with your um, you know, self-sin is uh, on par with um, with infidelity. And uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 5. I, I think some of the answers there are really ultimately the understanding God's grace in our lives and his presence in our lives. And so the presence of Christ, we, we don't engage in these things when Jesus is is in our consciousness when we're living for Christ. It's when we forget about him and we go off the rails that um, I see this in two very powerful passages. And this was not a chapter that I wrote. And I don't remember at this point, whether we actually got that woven in or not, but uh, I see Genesis 39 where Joseph refuses to um, engage sexually with um, Potiphar's wife because of the Lord. How can I do this evil thing and sin against God? He doesn't say, how do I do such a, uh, an evil thing and risk getting a uh, sexual uh, you know, infection or risk pregnancy or, wish, or, or risk the boss finding out? But ultimately, how can I do this and, and dis, dishonor and displease God? The same thing, the theme comes out in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says that sexual immorality is you're acting like a pagan who doesn't, who don't know God, pagans who don't know God. And so when we gauge in any kind of sexual sin, we are, we are acting like we're atheists. It's practical atheism at that point. We're denying uh, the Lord. And so what do we do? We help people see the greatness of Christ, his love for us, the glories of Jesus. Mm. And we let that become a greater thrill and a greater pleasure than anything this world would offer us. Yeah, that's really good. What are, what are some keys to helping people with guidance and decision-making? Got a one-word answer, brother, the Bible. <laughs> wow. And I say that not just because 
Uh, we want to get what we are to do from Scripture, but because uh, because we we want to recognize that all sorts of other things that people add here uh, are not going to cut it. Our, the, the Bible liberates us in this sense. We don't have to have blueprints and memos from heaven. We have to simply live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, following what his word commands, and uh, seeking guidance from other people, getting uh, counsel, asking God to keep giving us wisdom. But we're not, at, we're not looking for you know, uh, light bolts from, you know, uh, from heaven or anything, anything like that. We're looking for basic biblical help. And um, yeah, we did a chapter on that. And in that chapter, we talked about some of the wrong ways that people approach it. And then we gave some practical counsel on what you should do and even how to assemble a, a couple of people on the team who can give you some guidance and, and how they can, you know, weigh in on decisions that you need to make. Yeah. That's really good. Well, brother, where can people go to find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise? I don't know. I don't want to blame the fact that I'm I'm 62 on being old school here. Uh, <laughs> I I have a Twitter account, but I never look at it. So I'm not going to not going to give it out. I rarely look at others. I rarely tweet. Uh, I do have a website. It's a little dated, but at least has resources on it. And uh, you know, anyone you're uh, listening where wants to volunteer to be my uh, admin, let me know. Um, Robert Robert D Jones, all one word. Robert D D is for David. Robert D Jones Counseling.com. and we have some resources that. That we put there. Um, but folks can email me. I don't mind that. Um, and the email address is, is found there as well. And, you know, for other kinds of reasons, um, happy yeah. to try to interact with you. On yeah, that. definitely. Definitely. Well, there's a lot that we could talk about uh, and we have talked about. And as I always say, we're really only scratching the surface and this is doubly <laughs> true with a large book like this. So, Bob, just as we wrap up, can you give us a few takeaways? Study God's word and study God's word. Uh, Connect to a healthy local church that's serious about scripture, where you've got pastors and elders who can really guide you. Go to websites like the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. These websites are filled with resources. You'll get uh, blog posts and podcasts, all sorts of resources that were not around 10 years ago. And and Dave, you've been doing this kind of work for a while now, and you've seen, I'm sure, the uh, growth, I would want to say over 10 years, the explosion of solid biblical counseling materials. So um, yeah, connect well to the God's word, your church, one another, and uh, come study at Boyce College or the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We'd love to have you join us. Yeah. Hey, can't can't get away from uh, saying that, can you, brother? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really have enjoyed the conversation today, Dr. Jones. Guys, Uh, Go ahead and pick up this book. Uh, We've been talking today with uh, Dr. Jones about his book with uh, Drs. uh, uh, Kellen and Green. Uh, Their book is The Gospel for Disordered Lives, an Introduction to Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling. Dr. Jones, thank you again for your time and and for all that you do and, and also for being an encouragement to me. God bless you. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter 
at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.